0: If you enjoy this show, I think you would also enjoy a podcast called Risk, hosted by former guest Kevin Allison. Uh, tons of great people telling true, vulnerable stories. People like Dan Savage, Trevor Noah, Sarah Silverman, Margaret Cho, and ordinary people from around the world. Um, check out Kevin's episode number 316 on our podcast uh, and uh, check it out. I think you'd really like it. You can go to risk-show.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. That's R-I-S-K-show.com. Welcome to episode 508 with my guest, Dr. Eric Wan. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the bullshit bouncing around our heads. Uh the show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Metalpod also the social media handles you can follow us at. Uh, let's dive into it. Actually I wanted to share something before we did this. I have the feeling this is probably kind of a universal thing, but I was playing hockey the other night and somebody called me by the wrong name. And it felt like it bothered me more than it should. And I understand that this person, I've met them maybe once or twice, that, that they wouldn't know my name. I've done the same thing. But there's there's this kind of quasi-painful, sad feeling that comes up in me when somebody calls me by the wrong name. And I think it's because it reminds me, oh, I'm, I'm just one of the billions. But there are times when feeling one of many is really connective, especially like when I'm in my support groups. But I don't know. I don't know why that that bothers me so much or it, or that it feels that way because it's not that intense how it feels, but it, it feels like I should be able to have it roll off my back more than it does. Uh, and there's a little part of me, like when somebody knows my last name, that is surprised. It's so weird. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Shark Tooth. About his depression, he writes, My depression is like walking around with a screw in my dick glued to my heel. That is quite. That is quite an image. And... I don't know if your dick is so long it reaches your heel, in which case I do not feel sorry for you. Actually, if somebody's dick was that big, I would feel sorry for them. Um, About his ADHD. It's like folding clothes in the shower while eating a sandwich before I'm late for therapy. About his anxiety. It's like swimming with great white sharks with a pork chop around your neck. About his alcoholism and drug addiction. Nothing is enough and everything is too much. Oh, that's so true. But his sex addiction, it's like walking around a bakery starving and you can't buy any of uh, the 27 different flavored donuts. Snapshot from his life. Growing up, there was a good male friend of my parents who would come over to our house. Totally fucked up, he would kiss my mother on the mouth when he would visit and would skinny dip with my dad in our hot tub. He molested me from grade 8 all the way till I was 20. I never knew that, that it was wrong. I thought he was just loving me in this secret way. I told my girlfriend when I was drinking one night and she told me to call my parents. I did, and they didn't believe me. My heart broke that day. I sued this man and have been sober for just over two years now. I used to do drugs and drink hard and use sex as a way to cope. Today I go to many support groups and try and heal the hole inside my soul. Buddy, I was when I when I read that last part of your survey, I just wanted to drive to wherever you are and high five you. That is for people who haven't experienced sexual violation especially multiple sexual violations and then to not be believed by the people who are supposed to protect you I mean those are some serious serious wounds Uh, and the fact that you are taking care of yourself and and healing and and that you can smile is fucking amazing fucking amazing We are sponsored today by the online therapy provider betterhelp.com. If you've never tried online therapy, why wouldn't you try it now? Uh, They have tons of great qualified therapists. Just go to our link which is betterhelp.com slash mental make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast and then just fill out a questionnaire and if they have a counselor that they think is a good fit they'll match you up with one and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if it's a good fit for you um, there's a huge range of expertise available which uh, often is not available for people uh, locally uh, better help is available worldwide um yeah, BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So again, go to betterhelp.com mental. One more survey before we get to the interview with uh, Dr. Juan. This is uh, an awful moment filled out by uh, Nan, and she writes, As a CNA, I had a job caretaking a brain-injured woman. She had a binge eating issue, executive functioning issues, anxiety and a lowered IQ. This woman ate way healthier than me and had her life more together than I did. I asked her about the eating disorder. I was supposed to keep an eye on I asked her about the eating disorder I was supposed to keep an eye on and anxiety issues. She said, "Oh, I may eat an entire bag of cauliflower chips when I get overwhelmed, so I can only buy mini bags." Um, lady, I ate a gallon of ice cream last night and I had to take a Klonopin just to get in my car this morning. I think she should have been taking care of me. Every little thing feels like the end of the world
1: that shame in order to feel the pleasure. And I was being a dick to everybody. We are social beings. And the only way you're going to get it out is to cry. We need to be with people. I grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watch
0: the breath leave their bodies. Maybe well, listen, people- thanks for coming in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with Dr. Eric Wan, who is a former Navy flight surgeon, um, but... Currently, you are working in the field of neuroscience, and you're studying uh, PTSD, traumatic brain injuries, depression. Um, thanks for coming on, first of all. Yeah, it's, uh, it's absolutely an honor to be here with you. So what kind of stuff are you discovering uh, doing uh, neuroscience research, and, and how are you mapping the brain?
1: Yeah, so this is really an emerging uh, space within medicine we call neuromodulation, and um, it's a form of brain stimulation. What we're doing a little bit differently is personalizing it to each individual, and the way we do that, and one of the more interesting components to this is using a brain mapping technology uh, called quantitative EEG. Is that where you put the electrodes all over the head? That's exactly right, and- Much like the way an EKG is an electrophysiologic picture of the brain, an EEG is an electrophysiologic picture, or I'm sorry, an EKG is an electrophysiologic picture of the heart, and an EEG is an electrophysiologic picture of the brain. And we can glean quite a bit of information uh, from these images. And... Uh, just to explain a little bit about that, you know, most of the time in neuroscience, we think the gold standard in imaging is uh, an MRI or a CT scan, but those are generally snapshots in time. They're still images, whereas an EEG, because it's taken over a time domain, it's kind of like a video and we can see what is your brain doing over time? How are the different areas communicating with each other? So you uh, are you seeing uh, alpha and theta brain waves and stuff like that? That's exactly right. And so
0: it sounds like you're very well versed. I, I a- did neuro uh neurofeedback, I guess it would be called. Um yeah. I did many sessions, but my brain is stubborn, man. It's stubborn to meds. I I've done uh transcranial magnetic stimulation, nothing from that. I've tried ketamine treatments. Uh yeah, my brain is a motherfucker. It is just <laughs> It does not participate. Uh, But the guy that that did it, uh, it, a great guy works through uh, UCLA and was, you know, just he he was so curious about why my brain was just not responding. Um, But for many people, they they get a tremendous uh, response from it. Uh, Talk about different brain waves, if you would.
1: Yeah. And so you, you mentioned two of them, alpha and theta. And those are two of the more intensely researched type of bands. Um, there's also, uh, delta and beta. But, um, what we're doing is we're primarily focused on alpha and theta. And there, there turns out to be stereotypical waveform patterns that emerge after doing thousands of these EEGs. And classically in depression, you see, some slow wave activity in the prefrontal cortex and specifically the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. This is the executive function area of the brain that organizes thoughts, planning, you know, emotional self-awareness, these kind of things. And um, if I can sort of lay out a picture, we all have uh, a unique signature and a typical refresh rate somewhere between eight and 13 Hertz, which is your alpha band. And let's just say you are somebody who is an 11.4 Hertz brain, which means you encode information 11.4 times per second. But if we see this waveform pattern of depression, where there may be a cluster of neurons that are cycling at two Hertz, um, because of that information mismatch, it may manifest as depression. You feel lethargic, don't want to get out of bed and, and lack motivation. And, where we differ a bit from the TMSU experience, TMS tends to be one location, one frequency. So it's that left dorsolateral or prefrontal cortex area, and it's 10 hertz. And what we're doing is customizing to the individual. And so let's say rather than being in that area, your frequency and mismatch was the right occipital parietal lobe for whatever reason. If you, as a child, fell off ladder, hit the back of your head, and a cluster of neurons uh, was stunned, and it just happened to be firing more slowly. Um, we would geonavigate to that specific area and then we would find out what the um, cycle rate of your brain is. And we would tune to that area in hopes of trying to nudge those neurons back into uh, a healthier state. And so classically TMS will, will, will be fixed and it's going to go after 10 Hertz uh, because if you look at a population curve, most people are going to be right around 10. Uh, but at either. Tail of a bell curve. Whether you're a fast information processor who, let's say, it's an eleven or twelve hertz brain, or maybe a more creative person who's an eight or nine hertz brain, that ten hertz stimulation may not be as effective as it could be if we treated um, based on your biological signal, what's unique to
0: you. I got you. So the the picture of the brain you get uh, are are you seeing all the the parts of it? You, you mentioned the prefrontal cortex are um does it show you like a, a 2D image where you Correct. can see what's yeah. working and what's not
1: that's exactly right and so eegs uh they've been around for close to 100 years and in analog form but they became digitized right around 2008 and that allowed us to do very sophisticated computational analytics and uh, we're now able to create 2D, 3D type images. Yeah. And so there's enough spatial resolution where we can identify areas of the brain that may not be as coherent, meaning they're not communicating as well to other adjacent areas of uh, cortical tissue as they otherwise could be. Gotcha.
0: Give me some success stories uh, that you've had, whether it's depression or brain injury. Um, what... Yeah,
1: and so you know, just with my background, uh, in the military, that, that ended up being something uh, that I'm personally quite passionate about. And my first case was, uh, a veteran, he was a crew chief that I had deployed with. Um, and he, he had the misfortune of witnessing one of his best friends die in combat. And, um, yeah, over the next, uh, 12 to 13 years, uh, struggled a bit and was doing everything, his doctors and, uh, the VA was telling him to do. And, um, Unfortunately, ended up on between 18 to 20 medications a day, and um, was struggling to read, struggling to sleep, um, and it was really one of those scenarios where it was the community that reached out to me and said, "Hey, can you do something to help him?" And I'm going to leave his name out uh, just for medical confidentiality. But I reached out to him. We had some long conversations, and uh, you know, as a friend, there was there was quite a bit of guilt because this was my buddy. And I'd lost touch with him and I didn't know he was struggling like this, but um, we got him into give the treatment a try. And this is at a point when I was very skeptical about the technology. And uh, so it was just, let's see what it can do. I can't make any promises, Um, but it may be worth a try because there's some promising data and really within a week and a half to two weeks, he had a fairly significant transformation to the point where his wife came into the clinic in tears saying, this is my husband. You gave me my husband back. Wow. And, um, you know, he was engaged again. Uh, he would leave his room and, you know, he started coaching his kid's football team. Um, and um, sometimes you just see in somebody's eyes that something has changed. And, and with him, um, it was a fairly profound change. What I wasn't anticipating was that, so he went through about two months of treatment and about the six week mark, he gave me a call. And said, Hey doc, I'm off of all my medication. And, uh, I, I stopped in my tracks and said, Hey, that's, that's actually a little bit dangerous. He shouldn't be doing that because he was on, uh, right. opioids. And he said, Well, you know, I just tapered myself down and I, I feel so much better when I'm off of these medications. Um, and so to me, that was, that was fairly compelling. And, um, if it wasn't my friend, I may not have believed it. Uh, but you know, I knew that this was, not somebody who um, would candy coat things but wasn't working, he would certainly tell me. Um, but he was having a, a wonderful response. And uh, as I was betting the technology, I brought in the second Marine and third Marine, and um, they both had positive responses. And so, you know, there comes a point where you realize, okay, you know, there's something here. And, yeah. you know, we've embarked on many other really academically rigorous research trials and clinical studies. And um, while we're on the front end of a lot of that, we're seeing some promising data and results come
0: back. That's, that's exciting. Talk, talk about being a flight surgeon. uh, If you, if you would kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe some snapshots from your experience there. Sure. Sure.
1: So being a flight surgeon, so I was a Navy flight surgeon. I was attached to a Marine Corps unit HBM 268 and uh, we were medium lift squadron And when we deployed, we were part of the 11th Marine Expeditionary Unit Special Operations Capable. We were supporting special operations in the Persian Gulf. And um, I look back at that time as uh, some of my best years, um, just developed friendships that I'll
0: have with me for life. Uh, Great. can't, can't imagine how deep they must be when you go through such intense experiences where you depend on each other.
1: Yeah, it's it's a unique thing where, um, you know, when you're going to another country that may not be particularly friendly to the U.S. and all you have is each other, and you're, whether you're doing training or you're in, you know, live-fire combat missions, um, it forges some very deep friendships and bonds, and um, I don't want to misrepresent anything. You know, as a doctor, I was always in the back, and these guys were the heroes going out, doing the great work, um, but uh, just a tremendous honor to... Uh, be a part of the mission. And, um, you know, I have the good fortune of being there, you know, during the times of crisis or if something does go bad to be able to try to help out in any way that I could. And so that bond kind of carries with you even when you leave the service. And, um, you know, so we had um, the, the first casualties of the second Gulf War and as a residue of that, uh, a lot of post-traumatic stress. Um, it was a very kinetic environment, so we had a good number of traumatic brain injuries. And even though I had uh, left the service and finished up my medical training, um, my devotion and, and dedication to these guys um, really sort of strengthened. So I was l- always looking for what could be helpful. And mm-hmm. um, you know, this last week, and I listened to a bunch of your podcasts, and um, it was refreshing to hear uh, you know the the openness to a lot of the evidence based literature out there because not everyone's aware of EMDR, or you know there may not be the kind of openness that there should be to different types of uh, therapies, whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical therapy, uh, prolonged exposure. You know there's there's more and more tools that are being added um, to the fight, and that you're covering these I think is a very important conversation to have. I think just the awareness. Is important and um you know we we're trying to offer everything we could to uh our veterans uh during this window and uh learning about this i think the big advantages of this technology at least what uh made it interesting to me is that it was totally non-pharmaceutical and so much of uh what's in the behavioral health and mental health space is psychopharma and medication management and i'm certainly not an anti-pharma guy i think that these are um, very useful evidence-based, uh, adjuncts that are uh, available, but, um, to be able to offer something that is completely non-pharmaceutical and non-surgical and a very gentle 30 minutes a day of treatment type of uh, offering, uh, was pretty exciting to
0: me. And, and so typically how many sessions does a person need to have a breakthrough or where they can kind of stop coming in or do they need to come back like once a month for refreshes, refreshers? Yeah.
1: So our protocol is 30 minutes a
0: day, uh, generally five
1: days a week for, uh, for our veterans, we typically see four to six weeks of treatments. They'll usually start noticing a benefit uh, within the first week or two. And uh, we're getting EEGs every week, every two weeks so we can monitor progress. Um, And I, I would say that's actually a fairly powerful tool is just to be able to see that something uh, is there. I think many of uh, our vets have been told that, Hey, your MRI is normal. This is, this is just something that's in your head or um, it, it, what we've found. And this is my, my firm belief um, it, is that there tends to be very frequently an organic issue, whether it's in the circuitry or neuronal misfiring um, that is leading to symptomatology and um, many times just to be able to understand that and that is not an issue of discipline or suck it up or, or praying to, or praying. Yeah. I mean, that, you know, there, there is something here and we might be able to work to improve that. You know, in terms of the healing journey, I think that's an important first step is to be able to see that, uh, acknowledge it. And then, um, you know, I'm, I'm a big advocate just in terms of patient care uh, and being transparent. We're, we're one modality. I think we're a very powerful one, but there are many other things that I would endorse for most patients, whether it's meditation, mindfulness, proper eating, um, good exercise, but, but really, I think foundationally one of the things that's become of, of critical importance is, is proper sleep. And it, it's an interesting phenomenon. Um, uh, a researcher out of Berkeley, formerly at Harvard, Matthew Walker, he published a book called uh, "Why We Sleep." But he's highlighted that uh, we're the only species in nature that will voluntarily self-deprive itself of sleep. It's such just such a critical element to our physiology, and you know we can talk for hours about the long-term and downrange both benefits and detriments if you're not if you're underslept, where there's cardiovascular health, uh, cerebrovascular health, emotional resilience. Um, even proneness to injury, you know, there, there's these great studies now showing the importance of sleep and with our, you know, we've actually noticed that there is one of the first things uh, we hear is that people are getting um, deeper, higher quality sleep. And uh, I wanted to test that for myself. So um, I got one of these whoop devices they're, um They're wearables where you can measure sleep. That's supposed to be roughly 90% as accurate as in that polysomnogram and Um, I was pleasantly surprised the amount of REM sleep I was getting did increase quite a bit. And so um, we're kind of learning about these things as we move forward. But, um, but yeah, you know, this is, uh, I think we're entering an era where um, we want to, in the best interest of uh, patient care, add uh, adjunctively all the other things that are very good
0: um, and beneficial for uh, emotional well-being and, and overall health. So, if somebody who's listening wants to investigate this in their area, what would they look for? Uh, neurofeedback. F- so, neurofeedback
1: is is a different um, uh, type of modality. Okay. Uh, yeah, this is the base technology, is something called transcranial magnetic stimulation. You you had mentioned okay. that in the beginning, um, where it sends being, pulses. Exactly. There's, it's about five seconds of pulses every minute for 30 minutes. Um, we're doing the same thing with the TMS device, except we're modifying it with a personalized protocol that is unique to each individual. And so getting the EEG is that first step. And if, if there was interest in, uh, you know, evaluating it, looking into it, um, it's called MyWave TMS, and you can investigate it on at BraintreatmentCenter.com. Um, that's our clinical, uh, group. There's a group of doctors, uh, and they have clinics around the country. Uh, we're the technology company. I sit on the technology side of the house, um, part of an organization called wave neuroscience or WaveNeuro.com. And, um, there's regulatory reasons where there has to be separation of church and state. And so the physician group that is practicing medicine cannot be incentivized. Um, to use the technology. They always have to do it in the best interest of the patient, and so uh, we separate our, our doctor group from our technology R and D, and that's why there's sort of two separate entities. Here. No, no insider trading.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Do you? I mean, you must have seen some horrifying stuff uh, when when you were on your tour of duty. Do Do you sometimes wonder whether or not? You have PTSD?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a great question. And um, one of the things I, I like to talk about, and sort of carrying the torch of General Corelli, who was pushing for the D to be taken out of post traumatic stress disorder. Um, post traumatic stress is a normal human reaction to, to this environment. And whether it's um, a veteran who experiences uh, trauma in a combat environment or uh, a sexual trauma survivor who experiences something horrific, the brain tends to rewire in a certain way that, um, you know, that's very difficult to overcome from time to time. And where, you know, I think that there is academic discussion of disorders, you know, how much does it impair you in your day-to-day life? And, you know, for me, I've been able to uh, push forward. I, I've certainly experienced and witnessed um some not very pleasant things. Uh, but I've been able to manage, uh, for whatever reason. And so, um, I've never really, uh, explored or, or, or sought help. But, um, I do know there are times when, uh, I go through some significant feelings of guilt that I couldn't have done more for uh, my brothers and sisters. Um, at the moment of need, I think, uh, that's part of being human, but, um, I haven't found it to be, uh, disabling yet. And, but I think that that's an important part of the discussion is there is an amount, I think everyone has, um, internally of neuroplasticity. And so even when these horrible things happen, um, uh, what we found is, uh, in, in certain individuals, uh, areas of the brain that may not be firing well seem to get stuck. Um, and that can be from physical trauma from, let's just say a blast injury. It can be, from emotional trauma of losing a loved one. It can be from chemical trauma. If somebody's had years of hard drinking or hard drugs, uh, we just find areas of the brain that are not firing as well as, as they should. Sometimes more than two standard deviations. I got Yeah, you. and when we find that there's a, a very significant deviation from where you would expect those neurons to be firing, those are the areas that we target with our transcranial magnetic stimulation device. I got you. And so, but even though you'd mentioned you you didn't have a positive response in the past, um, and you can take this off the air if, if you want, but uh, I would love to get an EEG and have this conversation with you and see if you might have a response if we're able to customize it to you as an individual. Where are you based? So we're based out of Newport Beach in San Diego. Um, I think you're in LA. I am. Um, so we were planning on opening a center in LA. I don't know where we are with that, um, but just...
0: Now no, would, now would be a great time. Okay. All right. Well, let, <laughs> no, let's, just let's kidding. pick that up. Yeah. Let's pick yeah. that up offline.
1: And and I know you can yes. edit things so, so we can. Yeah, no, I I'm leaving all this in. It's all good <laughs> stuff. Yeah. All right. You know, I'm always sensitive to, to medical privacy, but, um, but yeah, you know, and I, I can't make any promises and uh, don't want to, um, you know, embellish or or oversell or any of that. But I I do think that um, there's a chance that we could see a response that you didn't experience with the one
0: size fits all version of TMS. Oh, cool. I'd I'd definitely be down for that. So uh, shoot, shoot me an email if you guys do open up uh, one in LA or I'll just move to San Diego and start a life there. (laughs) There are worse places to be in the world than San Diego. Yeah, my best yeah. friend lives down in Carlsbad. He's a retired uh, MD. He, he was an interventional pain specialist. Um, so we did an initial recording and you did, let's talk about what, what we said uh, after the initial recording, the email, and then let's pick it up there.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, our discussion caused me to be fairly introspective in thinking uh, about my experience with, with post-traumatic stress. And it really brought to mind, uh, I think, the experience I went through in, in New York. And um, I didn't mention to you in our initial call that I had volunteered a month to go to New York City during the, the height of the pandemic uh, there. And I volunteered at two locations. One was uh, SUNY hospital downstate also referred to as university hospital. And then within the first week or two, there was a recognition that a lot of the um, sickest people and, and the highest mortality was coming from the nursing homes. So I started spending time at one of the nursing homes in, in Cobble Hill. And, and for me, that was a, a fairly profoundly impactful experience. And, you know in our initial conversation my mindset was really focused on the military and you know i mentioned that um you know a lot of the um people who were experiencing trauma were on the front lines and i as a physician was in the back taking care of uh the injuries and stitching people up and um uh, coordinating medevacs but um it was a different experience in new york in the sense that um at first, it was an incredible privilege to serve alongside the people who had been there from the beginning. And the unique dynamic was that many of the physicians uh, I got to serve with were there for 9-11. And so, wow. you know, mass casualty event where you're dealing with a constant onslaught of uh, morbidity and mortality really just takes a toll that I wasn't anticipating. And uh, I feel unworthy of complaining. I was only there for a month. The people who have been there for a very prolonged period of time. Um, just to frame
0: this a little bit, especially in the nursing homes. Um, by the by, the way, that's kind of like saying, uh, you know, I only got hit by a car once. There's somebody I know that got hit by a car twice. <laughs> well, yeah.
1: And I suppose to a degree, all, all things are relative, but I, my heart really goes out to the people who, um, have been in for the full marathon. And for me, 30 days was just soul crushing because, and I think of, you know, in these nursing homes and this was actually a different time. We've gotten so much better at managing, uh, COVID-19 and, um, we have new therapeutics that have come online like remdesivir and, uh, dexamethasone and monoclonal antibodies. Back then, it was a novel virus and we really didn't know uh, how to effectively combat it and uh, just to explain in, in the nursing homes when somebody when one when one of the residents was going to expire um, they didn't get to be with their loved ones you know we were connecting families by tablet and you know they would have to say their goodbyes remotely oh my god yeah it was pretty horrible and and that's one component the other one is some of the greatest, uh, I would say, unsung heroes are, you know, the nurses and medical staff at these facilities. Um, Just their fierce dedication to helping their, their patients and their communities was awe inspiring. And I get emotional even talking about it now, but um, some of these ladies were, you know, they, they came from the Dominican Republic to serve, and they would not leave the bedside uh, of some of these patients and, um, at the same time, there's tremendous fear for self, uh, and going home to your families, you worried, "Am I giving this to
0: you know my children or or my spouse?" And um, or uh, people was- that live with their grandparents, you know, or their parents. I I, I can't imagine how stressful that must be. Uh, if you would paint a, a picture and give me some, if you can remember uh, specific examples, uh, to really kind of bring us there to be a fly on the wall.
1: Sure. And, you know, the experiences were very different too. I think in a hospital setting, uh, many of the patients I had the the privilege of taking care of were, um, either put on ventilators or, um, uh, were, were in the units. And so, uh, and there was a large team to take care of them. And so, uh, the difficulty there was that, uh, there's fairly rapid turnover. There were a lot of, a lot of patients, unfortunately, who we couldn't save, but in the nursing homes where you got to know many of the patients and the residents, um, that for me on, on a human level was a bit more challenging. And I, I think back fondly to, uh, a wonderful lady who, um, was struggling with dementia and she, would tell me the same beautiful story every day that I saw her as if it was the first time of, of when she met her husband. And um, with the same enthusiasm and exuberance every day uh, for about two and a half weeks. And then she, she had a very rapid decline and um, yeah, for her family to not be able to be there. Uh, we weren't allowing uh, family to come into uh, the nursing homes was really just torture to see, you know, it's not the right way for somebody who lived a full life and uh, that was surrounded by love to not have, you know, the warm embrace of uh, their children or grandchildren. Um, uh, To this day, it's it's a really hard thing. (laughs) I apologize.
0: If there's any podcast where uh, tears are welcomed, it's it's this one. It's one of the reasons why I started the podcast because holding my tears in almost killed me. So, um, yeah, no, these are just hard things to I think
1: deal with, and you know, of course, um, you know, my uh, relationship with this uh, incredible lady was was two and a half weeks, and so I think about uh, the families who. Um, you know, had to say their farewell. And, um, you know, that's, I'm sure, a lot to deal with. And so, yeah, it's, a I think, kind of a unique time. It's not something that we've had to deal with, I think, in our lifetimes. And so, you know, in terms of a message that I think would be useful to get out there is just awareness of uh, the first responder fatigue and, and in many cases, I think post-traumatic stress that occurs uh, and, and not just doctors and nurses, but paramedics, firefighters, police officers, um, everyone who's interfacing with this sort of razor's edge of um, you know life and death and sickness. Um, there's a human struggle uh, behind all of that. And so I, I just think... In this time, it's sort of been glossed over, but to hold in the line in that time of just incredible crisis, uh, was amazing. And I think there are countless stories of heroism and not just in New York, but we had, we had reached very close to a breaking point, I believe in Houston and Miami and, and Los Angeles as well. And so the teams that have been out there, uh, I suspect there, there are people struggling and I hope, uh, that they will reach out and seek help if they need it. Um, Because this is, uh, I believe, sort of this hidden epidemic within the pandemic. And um, people need to take care of themselves and and need to get the rest. They need to uh, continue the
0: fight. Uh, Two questions. Uh, The first one is, I'm I'm curious to know what the story is that that woman told you. And then I'd like you to talk about the ways that PTSD is presenting itself uh, not only in you, but uh, among other people that are on the front lines.
1: Yeah. Well, so uh, she would describe in great detail how, you know, she was just in a, a park uh, and, and they had actually met in Europe, in, in France. And um, she could detail sort of uh, uh, the weather and how, you know, the flowers were blooming on that day. And, um, you know, her and her future husband just went for a walk in the park and, um, it, it was fascinating for me to hear kind of the same story and the facial expressions that she had. And, and for me, it was just a nice break. I kind of knew what was coming, but it was, yeah. um, you know, it, it was something I genuinely enjoyed to be able to uh, relive that moment uh, with her. And, but I couldn't have anticipated that, um, you know, just a couple weeks later um, she would be lost to the world.
0: By the way, it's it's nice, too, for uh somebody who's repeating a story when they have dementia for it to be a positive one. Uh My grandmother repeatedly told the story about her mother and collab- her mother collapsing and dying in front of her at church when she was seven. And oh, boy, just hearing that story over and over again was was, you know, not, not pleasant. And of course I felt for her because she had to keep reliving it. Uh, but go ahead. I interrupted you. No, I, I'm sorry to hear that. I know that uh, had to have been difficult.
1: I'm dead inside, so it didn't bother me, but go ahead. <laughs> um, in, in terms of how it's experienced, um, you know, everyone's just a little bit different. You know, for me, it was just, uh, I found that I had less patience than I normally did. And um, I I don't know that it would be outwardly manifested other than uh, I felt I had sort of lower energy than usual. And, you know, in reality, it may have just been a bit of a grieving process that, you know, we, we were part of kind of this historical event. Um, I think very few people will have experienced uh, that amount of mortality in, in a short kind of compressed period of time. How many people do you think you uh, were there when, when they passed away? Uh, in person, it's a smaller number. I probably estimate about uh, a dozen, but there would be people. That's a lot. It is a lot, but you know, you think about uh, the New York experience, it was, you know, tens of thousands uh, of lives lost and um, you know, but our teams, you know, when we would do the handoffs and, and you finished rounds, um, you know, the next day, many of the people that uh, you were taking care of weren't there anymore. And so it unfortunately kind of becomes something that you uh, emotionally become numb to. And uh, you just keep pressing forward because there's many other people who
0: you need to take care of. When um, when somebody was put on a ventilator, did you generally think to yourself, this person's not going to make it?
1: I did not. You know, I, I think always... Uh, as, as a provider, you have to have hope and you exhaust every resource at your disposal. And so uh, I didn't personally uh, think that, you know, there was no chance or, or anything along those lines. You always go through a bit of a risk analysis. If somebody had diabetes and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and kidney disease, you know, the odds were stacked against them and uh, you would sort of wait. Uh, what are the chances of survival? I I don't know that you would want to enter sort of discussion thinking that, yeah, this is uh, a hopeless cause or anything like that. And so you always Mm -hmm. went into it with um, hopefully the right, the right mindset and hope that, you know, we could save this individual.
0: How many people did you, not necessarily uh, accompany when they uh, passed away, but people who, whose names you knew who you had had a conversation with, or is that the dozen you were speaking of? Uh, yeah,
1: I would say that's uh, the dozen I was speaking of. Um, probably larger numbers um, that would uh, expire sort of when I was off shift and I'd come back the next day and uh, you'd, you'd come to an empty room or a new name that was filling filling the bed. Um, and, and so I, I think in that sense, the, uh, for lack of a better term, the turnover rate was um, fairly substantial. Um, and uh, that's, I think, uh, obviously, it's it's something that makes you very sad. But at the same time, I think uh, you're forced to compartmentalize that and to try to keep press. you know, you, you keep pressing forward because there's uh, other people who you need to take care of and um i suspect that's part of uh the difficulty and um while i was there uh, one of the um i think real heroes of that time her name was dr lorna brain and uh she unfortunately um committed suicide this was something that was um you know widely uh unfortunately was was kind of widely discussed and uh was on the front page of the new york times uh, because she individually had saved hundreds of lives. And I think it just uh, took a toll. And um, one of the other doctors I had the enormous privilege of um, working next to, uh, his name was James Mahoney. He was a pulmonologist who put off retirement uh, to be in the fight and, and to help at uh university hospital. And um, he ended up uh, not surviving himself. And so, it's not just the patient care. I think that it's also from COVID, from COVID. Yeah. Um, you know, it's also sort of the, uh, pull that it takes on, you know, your, your own, uh, colleagues and teammates, uh, that can sort of compound, I think, the experience. Um, so, so yeah, I'm hoping, you know, with, uh, the future trajectory of this, we've gotten, so much smarter about how to treat and to manage and um, the amount of protective gear that we have, I think is in a much better place. So uh, God willing, there, there won't be uh, a similar episode where we're kind of caught off guard and, and trying to rally. Um, but, you know, this being uh, a really, it, it's looking like this is going to be uh, kind of a long-term um, battle. Uh, I hope that if there are those who are struggling that, you know, they, they will have the courage to reach out out for help and, and to talk to uh, their friends and colleagues uh, about what's going on. I think awareness is is one of the first issues that we need to deal with.
0: Anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up?
1: No, no. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk uh, about it and, Um, I really appreciate uh, all that you're doing for uh, the community, your audience, uh, and listeners. From the
0: danger of my bedroom. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Uh, I really appreciate you going back into those experiences and dredging them up uh, so you could share them with us. And, of course, thanks for for your service. I appreciate it. Oh, sure. Many, many thanks to him. Uh, Somebody told me that the donation page for our website was down Uh, i don't know how long it was down for but anybody who went there with the intention of donating that uh, couldn't would love it if you went back and donated you can do a one-time donation uh through paypal or a monthly donation through either paypal or patreon and i recommend patreon because uh, you can occasionally qualify for a little bonus stuff that that i do um You can support the show non-financially by going to iTunes, giving us a good rating. And the best way uh, non-financially you can support us is to uh, subscribe. I always forget to mention too that there are uh, t-shirts and coffee mugs and other stuff for sale on the website. Let's jump into some surveys. I don't think I'm going to get through all of these. I always bite off more than I can chew. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself, I thought I would take this to my grave. Uh, she's never been sexually abused. Uh, she writes that she's never been physically or emotionally abused. Uh, darkest thoughts. Oh, she is uh, identifies as straight in her 20s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Darkest thoughts. I'll share this another time darkest secrets. Uh, when I was in middle school, I masturbated with the electric toothbrushes of two of my relatives as I was curious about masturbation and it did not have one myself. I do not know what the fuck compelled me to do such a disgusting and unhygienic thing. Afterwards, I felt guilty and tried my best to clean them in boiling water. I should have made up a story like I accidentally knocked them into the toilet and, th- and thrown them away. But no, I put them back in the cupboard, and even worse, I use them three or four more times. I am so fucking disgusted with myself because not only is this a horrible thing to do to anyone, my family is very strict about hygiene. Instead of sharing a tube of toothpaste, each of us have our own to minimize germs. Each toothbrush is kept in a different shelf so they don't accidentally brush against each other. So this is especially egregious. Ugh, I am the worst. Every once in a while I come across a survey that where the person did something so innocuous and clearly childlike when they were a child uh and they're still holding it onto it today. Actually more than more than occasionally I'm, I come across this, but this this is something in my opinion that you you laugh with friends about to this to this day, it's so human, what you, what you did, and boy, is it time to forgive yourself and move on, and and have some compassion for that that curious kid. And by the way, this was filled out before COVID, uh, so the having the separate toothpastes thing. Um, have you shared these things with others? No, my family would be disgusted with me. I'm not saying you should share it with your family, uh, but. How do you feel after writing these things down? Bad, bad, bad. Oh, just want to give you a hug. just want to give you a hug. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Ronan. He identifies as straight. He's in his 40s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, He writes that he's never been sexually abused, but he's been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, Mom's boyfriend repeatedly hit me. Stepdad was emotionally abusive. My personality is such that I get picked on constantly. Any positive experiences with abusers, uh, he was otherwise a good dad. Other than the hitting. Darkest thoughts. I am out of gas, emotionally and physically. I don't know what to do. Dying seems like the best option. Although if I had a friend or some way to support my family, I'd feel a lot better. Also, my wife recently confessed to multiple cheating early in our marriage. I'm conflicted sexually, but one thing I know for a fact is I don't love her like I used to. Darkest secrets, cheating wife. I get excited thinking about her with another guy, but in reality, I'd probably beat him badly. Uh, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Watching my wife with another guy or girl, mostly guys, and I suck them after they use my wife. Then I fuck my wife when she is all full of his semen. I'm completely depressed about this situation. This is not me. At least I didn't think so. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Honestly, I want my wife to understand what she did to me. She still doesn't get it. What, if anything, do you wish for? I don't want to be who I am. I'm miserable. Have you shared these things with others? No, I'm afraid if I tell anyone, it will make it worse. How do you feel after writing these things down? Scared. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I don't know. Oh, buddy. I'm sorry that you're struggling and, and, and you're in pain. And just let me assure you that there are many, many people who have that that, that cheating fantasy. Uh, I have friends who have that one. And uh, you would think, that not that in conflict with their fear of their partner actually cheating? And it's actually one of the bra- ways that our brain deals with our anxiety about things. We sexualize them um, unconsciously and without without our consent. Uh, our bodies and our brains are turned on by by certain things. Um, so that is no statement on your morality or any any of that stuff, but. You know, To me, one of the hallmarks of intimacy in a relationship is a willingness to have difficult conversations. And I think it would at least give your relationship a chance of improving if you didn't just sweep under the rug the things that you're still feeling. And it might be good to do it with a, a therapist uh, to kind of mediate it. Uh, so sending you some love, man. And speaking of loves is from the Love Survey, filled out by uh, somebody who just filled out a bunch of numbers, is their name. Uh, I love a poop so good that it makes you wish you'd weighed yourself before and after. The kind that makes you go, fuck, that was a good poop. Uh, I love that my cats can tell when I need love and when I want to be left alone. When they can tell I need love, they cuddle up to me and lay on me any way to get as close to me as they can. I love the satisfaction of completing a ridiculously difficult jigsaw puzzle. I love the exact moment when this particular adorable dog in my neighborhood recognizes me and his limbs pull four different directions out of excitement to get to me. I love when the last bite of something is the best bite. Wow, you don't have the sadness that I do when the last bite... It's very rare the last bite coincides with feeling satisfied. I love my vibrator. Seriously, I now question whether I ever had an orgasm before I got this amazing thing. I love the random things my nephews and niece call me before they can say my actual name. I love a man's natural smell. Not BO, not cologne, not deodorant, just a natural scent. Few things turn me on more. I love the breakthroughs I've made in the last few years as I've fought mental health and self-hatred demons. Contrary to what I thought for nearly 30 years, I love myself and my body. Oh, that is such a great one. Thank you. Those are awesome. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who uh, calls herself Anne. She identifies as straight in her 30s. Uh, Raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, never been physically or emotionally abused. Uh, Darkest thoughts, I love my husband so much, I could see myself killing a rival for his affection. Darkest secrets, I cheated on my first husband. He was abusive and tried to, quote, get the truth out of me, but that doesn't make it okay. I've never told anyone that. We are divorced now and I remarried, but I still carry that with me in a bad, bad way. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I think about my husband with other women, and that gets me off, or the idea of being gang-fucked, but not the realness of it. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I tell my 15-year-old daughter all of the reasons that she should wait for sex, drugs, and alcohol. How much can I reveal before I turn into an advertisement? What do you wish for, if anything, for my father to live forever, forever? Have you shared these things with others? No. How do you feel after writing these things down? Better. Thanks, Paul. Thank you for that. And, you know, this was filled out right next to the other survey about the uh, the guy who was turned on by the idea of his wife cheating, even though in reality it's his, his one of his worst fears. Um, and I love when there's that... Those nice coincidences, it almost feels like the universe is telling people you are not alone in this and this is not as abnormal as you think it is. Um, Our brains react to abnormal situations uh, in ways that are baffling to us but to heap judgment on ourselves is, is not helpful. This is a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself <laughs> "I don't smile much, but my kids help me even though I don't want to have them, and they will never <laughs> know that uh He writes doing a school assigned exercise class with my son uh on i'm and I'm gonna hold back the the name of it uh just in case for some reason his kids would would hear that um I don't know maybe I'm being codependent um." His mother and I are no longer together, so he spends part of his day with me and the other half with his mother. We watch the live broadcasts on YouTube in the living room. We moved the coffee table and spread out and fully participated, being goofballs and letting ourselves be kids. He was so excited and full of joy and enthusiasm for it. The host would say would turn to someone uh, The host would say, "Turn to someone in your house and tell them, "You got this." And my son would turn and look at me with so much enthusiasm in his eyes and yell at me, Dad, you got this. He's happy to do anything with me, especially if I smile. I smiled that day a lot. God, do I love that. God, do I love when you see kids and they feel safe and connected and seen. That is the best gift you can give them. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself jerk-off-boy, 69. I believe that's his legal name. He identifies as bisexual. He's in his 20s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. My mom was always super handsy and close with us. She used to share way too much weird shit, too. Once, my older sister ran into the room shouting for me. She said, come look at this. I ran off with her. She took me to the toilet where my mom uh, sat with her tampon string hanging out of her. She just sat there and let us look at it like it was a funny joke. What the fuck, mom? That's fucking weird. Have some boundaries. Jesus. She also told me she wanted to watch porn with me, sort of as a joke, question mark. That is sexual abuse. These... There is no doubt uh, uh, about this. This is um, what's called covert incest, and there is a a great book uh, by a guy named uh, Dr. Kenneth Adams. It's called "Silently Seduced," and I highly recommend If you're listening, I highly recommend you read that. Or anybody who's hearing this and uh, is relating, it's sadly all too common. Um, the The way that you describe your your mother violating your your boundaries and it's every bit as damaging as actual physical contact um, uh, but it was years ago and i still remember it being super weird but i've never talked to her about it and it's fucking up my relationships and sex life now i get grossed out by intimacy and often feel like i'm losing control of my body when other people initiate anything sexual It's confusing, and I have a lot of rage about it, but it's all locked away. I feel a lot of shame about having step-sibling fetishes, and sometimes I watch mother-son role-play porn, which really turns me on but makes me feel sick and ashamed. I'm starting to remember some other possible abuse, too, with an older man. I think when I was a little boy, I'm sure something happened, and I'm starting to have weird body reactions and shaking uncontrollably the more I remember. It's driving me mad not knowing what happened. Sometimes I think I'm making things up in my head. It's hard to trust my feelings. I don't want to talk about it. I highly, highly recommend um, talking to a therapist about this. Going to a support group for intimacy struggles would be another great thing. Uh, if you're hearing this and you relate, um, you can contact me through the the, the website. I have some suggestions. Um, yeah. EMDR might be a good thing because clearly, you know, the way your body is reacting. Again, I'm not a therapist, but I've done a lot of different types of therapy and healing from the covert incest I experienced as a kid. And um, it's, I'm so glad it, it gave me my life back. And it allowed me to experience intimacy. and it And it feels fucking great being able to experience intimacy. Uh, He's not sure if he's ever been uh, physically or emotionally abused. He writes, My dad is controlling. He's super defensive and very insecure. I think his parents never showed much much affection to him, and his dad was very critical of him all the time. As a result, my dad runs the family like it's his own personal stage show. We all have set scripts. No one can point out uh, that everything feels fake and tense. He was very mean and belittling to all of us. I always felt he knew everything, and I was stupid and incompetent. I never felt it was okay to just be me, a young boy, a child. I have to be perfect and mature and polite and sensible. And I don't know if this is emotional abuse. Yes, it is emotional abuse. But I think it's made, uh, it's given me a lot of anxiety and fear about speaking my mind and having my own feelings and needs. And of course... Being raised in an environment like that would make intimacy terrifying. It's your brain trying to protect yourself because it doesn't know that there are other people out there that aren't your parents, that are safe. Any Positive experiences with the abusers. Yes, definitely. My parents loved spending time with us, even if it was sort of for their pleasure. We had a lot of cool holidays. My dad spent lots of time making up games for us, building tree houses, telling us stories, taking us on treasure hunts. It's confusing because he put a lot of effort and time into these nice things, but it didn't change how I felt about him. It makes me feel unappreciative, and I doubt my own feelings of anger towards my parents uh, now. Whenever I bring it up, my dad makes the point he wanted to be the best dad ever, and I don't really know just how much time and money and effort my parents put into us kids you know your feelings are your feelings and if they aren't the same feelings and and perspective your father had that's okay you don't need his permission to validate your feelings and and experiences and that's why i think therapy would be in support groups would be would be so great Darkest Thoughts. Sometimes I find myself thinking about what it would be like to just lose it and beat the shit out of someone, stab someone. and just let out all my rage. I'd never act on it, though. I find myself pissed off by all my friends sometimes, like it's all just an act, and they don't know that I'm really an asshole who just plays nice to be around people. Makes me feel like a sociopath or something. Also, I'm turned on by incest porn. I feel like a broken, perverted loser because of that. But then I see it's one of the top trending categories for the United States. Maybe everyone is a little fucked up like me? Question mark. I've sometimes looked at uh, role-playing uh, incest porn and, uh, pleasured myself to it. Boy, that feels uncomfortable to say that out loud, but I I just want to let you know that you're not alone. And the interesting thing was, it was really a turn on to me when I was in the early state. First of all, for the first, you know, 90% of my life, it was never anything that turned me on. Then when the reality of what hit me with my mom And I started remembering a lot of the things. That was the thing that I went to to soothe myself sexually. And then as I began to heal, I lost interest in it. And that to me is proof that there is a correlation between trauma and stuff that turns us on for some of us. Darkest Secrets. I think I maybe did some sexual stuff with my little sister when I was younger. I struggle to remember, but I have a feeling I'd persuade her to show me her genitals or we'd play pretend having sex, question mark. I've never been in a relationship. I guess I have an all-around feeling that my real life is embarrassing and dirty and broken. So I've learned to play by the rules and sort of live with and through other people, neglecting my own black tar of a life that I keep in my belly, feeding it with Ben and Jerry's and mommy porn. Oh, buddy. Oh, Oh, by the way, Ben and Jerry's does have a new flavor, and it's called Mommy Porn. Interesting. Interestingly enough, it's banana ice cream with fudge hands and a penis core. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Oops, already sort of covered this. Roleplay incest porn really does it for me. Brother and sister and mom and son. I feel worried that people would find out and reject me. Sharing it makes me feel a little less scary. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Mom, I'm not your little toy to play with and use to cover up your own sex and relationship issues. I don't owe you, and it's not my job to make you feel better. You were inappropriate a lot when I was young, and it's fucked me up, and that's why I'm seeing less of you these days. Stop making me feel guilty about it. I haven't said this because I feel mean and don't want to hurt my mom's feelings. And that is the hurdle to your healing, is you valuing yourself above, above your mother's feelings, in terms of processing this and she doesn't she doesn't even have to know any of this but it's time to validate the feelings you have instead of you criticizing yourself for having these feelings you know I, I can tell you all of the feelings that that you're having are totally in line with somebody who experienced what you experienced. What, if anything, do you wish for? A healthy relationship with someone I can be myself around and we can both heal together and be there for each other. I really, really recommend that you work on healing yourself before you get into uh, a serious relationship with somebody because the, the most common thing that happens is we use them to try to fix us and then we just get into a spiral of codependency and trauma bonding. And I know that because I have done that. Have you shared these things with others, most of them with my therapist, it felt good to get it off my chest, but my therapist didn't give me much back. I still feel a la I, I, I still feel I lack the tools to work through these issues when I'm not in the therapist's room. Um, I should have read that before I suggested therapy. Uh, sorry about that. But uh, support groups, support groups, support groups. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel like I'm being more honest with myself about how bad some of my issues are. I feel more open and more accepting of myself. I feel sad. And that's one of the signs of recovery is sadness, mourning the life the the, the innocent childhood that we that we didn't get to have. You know, sadness and and anger and confusion, those are all overwhelming inescapable feelings associated with healing and and recovery but it is better to get through them and let those feelings process than to be dragged down by them and to feel alone and small and hopeless the rest of our lives is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences isn't it fucked? i know how it feels it's not your fault you're not a pervert sex freak you're actually a pretty fun and interesting person. Don't be ashamed of your story and things that were beyond your control. Let's go bowling and talk about it. Oh, man. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Very much related to that one. You are not alone. And then... Uh, This is our our final survey. This is a happy moment filled out by Willow, and she writes, as a teen and as an adult, I had quite an array of hobbies and have always been a big DIYer. My senior year of high school, I bought a plain black evening gown at a thrift store, and I did some really cool bead work on it to wear to homecoming. I was sexually assaulted in college, and afterward, it felt like everything about my life before then belonged to someone else. The academic awards, the eclectic bookshelf, the totes of craft supplies and unfinished DIY projects, the varsity letters, etc. It wasn't until my late 20s that I stopped feeling like all of that was someone else's existence. This past summer, I was at my childhood home and stumbled across that black dress in the back of my old closet. I've gotten back into beadwork as of late, and holding that dress in my hand cemented it in my head, yes. That was you. You are still the same person. And what happened all those years ago does not change that. Love it. Love it. Thank you for that. If you're out there and you're feeling stuck, I'm sending you love and good vibes and you are so not alone. You are so not alone. It's such a shitty thing our brains tell us. You know it uh, is one of the biggest waste of wastes of time in our life is listening to the mean part in our brain but sometimes it's so hard to separate what is reality from what is our brain trying to protect ourselves um, but if you're out there and you're struggling you're not alone and thanks for listening everybody i know is bizarrely beautiful everybody fucked up i know in some weird is bizarrely beautifully everybody fucked up in some weird way bizarrely, bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some know. weird way <laughs>